Let me jump in just for sake of time to maybe bring us to a few points of application as we wrap up tonight. I think one, one of the things that I was able to pull out from this passage is first that we see that Christ is remaining very committed to his calling and to his mission. This is a time for him because of his healing ministry and the broadcasting of it, popularity was at its peak. It was growing. But in the middle of that, he remained steadfast to preach the gospel. He knew that man's greatest need wasn't his physical healing, but to be brought to peace with God. And that was the one distinct message that the gospel of Jesus had that set it apart from all these other gospels. It would bring reconciliation to God. We see later again in this book, Christ very clearly lays out, here's why I came. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He would bear the wrath of God upon himself so that we could escape that wrath and enjoy peace with God. And so because we see it reflected in Christ's ministry, it should have application for us corporately and individually. Our steadfast mission and calling should be the steadfast mission and calling of Christ. Yes, we're to be marked by joy and compassion and a concern for justice, but all of those things are byproducts of man being reconciled to God, which first happens through the gospel. May we never shrink from that. May we never swerve away from that mission. We must preach, proclaim, and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in every sphere and arena of our lives. So may we be a people individually and corporately that are characterized by the same mission as Christ our captain. So we see Christ remaining committed to his calling. While the headline over your, your scripture passage here probably reads, Jesus heals a paralytic. I think as we've already talked about, this story really centers on the, this, the theme of forgiveness. We've already seen demonstrations of Jesus' authority in many realms over disease, over unclean spirits, his teaching authority. And now we see his authority through forgiveness of sins. So we learn about faith. We learn about its connection to forgiveness of sins. In other words, we see the gospel on display. Through the eyes of Jesus, we see that there is a particular faith that results in the forgiveness of sins. Now, in the passage, it says Jesus saw their, plural, their faith, meaning the faith of the men that brought the paralytic. They were certainly exercising a kind of faith. I'm sure through experience, seeing it, hearing about it, they had faith that Jesus would be able to heal this man. And everyone in this world has a certain amount of faith in a lot of things. A natural human faith. Anytime you go to a restaurant, most of us haven't seen the kitchen. Most of us probably shouldn't see the kitchen. But you're, 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 you're assuming that based on your experience or reviews on Yelp or something, that there's going to be good food that comes out of the door of the kitchen. You enjoy it. You'll get nourishment and, and, and pleasure, and you won't hopefully get sick by it. You get on an airplane. You understand 
you haven't checked the credentials of the pilot, but you're assuming that the, the filter for which a man can take a seat in the pilot seat is that he's done all the training and he knows how to get you from point A to point B. So there, there's a natural human faith that says, based on logic, reason, experience, that the most logical outcome of the decision that I'm going to make is going to be positive. Now, these men had seen and heard of Jesus' healing, I'm sure. And they went to some pretty extreme lengths, as we see, to exercise faith that will heal their friend. I mean, guilty of vandalism? <laughs> Fear of the crowds? I mean, they're probably saying, wait, wait, wait a second. How come they are pushing their way forward and doing this? There certainly would be some embarrassment if they went to those lengths and Christ didn't heal them. They were taking, in one sense, a chance on Christ. But Jesus saw their faith. But interestingly, as I already mentioned, he sees plural their faith. But only the paralytic was granted eternal spiritual healing. He says, son, in another gospel, it says, friend, your sins are forgiven. We see later in the passage that Jesus Christ, through his deity, has the ability to perceive what is going on in the hearts of man. John 2, verse 25, <clears throat> states that no one needed to bear witness about man to Christ. Why? For he himself knew what was in man. So we can infer here that the paralytic, his faith, desiring something more than just physical healing... This wasn't mere natural faith, but this was a faith that was coming through regeneration. This was a faith from conviction, not just mere experience. In Ephesians 2, very famous passage for many of us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You didn't muster up this faith, but rather it is a gift of God. And it's not a result of work, so that no man could boast. This paralytic, physically and spiritually, had no room for boasting for Christ's claim of forgiveness on his life. This is also the kind of faith that comes, as we read in Romans, from hearing. And hearing from the word of God. What was Jesus doing while this was happening? Preaching the word, proclaiming the gospel. And as Eric brought out, this man seems to be a physical picture of our spiritual condition before Christ. And that scene may seem like, wow, that's really heavy and vivid, but it's probably not as heavy and as vivid as it actually should be. We were dead in trespasses and sins, not just paralyzed. We could do nothing to bring ourselves to Christ, but here we see a beautiful picture of the gospel. There is new life given by Christ to one who did absolutely nothing to earn or deserve it, but simply recognized his need, and he put simple faith in the one who could save his soul. So Jesus sees the natural human faith of, a, of the friends. He sees a regenerate faith in the paralytic and offers forgiveness of sins, commands forgiveness of sins. And now the attention turns to these religious elite, the scribes, the keepers of the law. They hedged the law so tightly with their own additional commands and traditions. They built wall upon wall upon wall around the walls of the law that they ended up heaping deep guilt and burdens on everyone under their teaching and their authority. And Jesus, as the divine, divine Son of God, 
the one who knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart, publicly declares what they're thinking. Now, these scribes thought they had Jesus right where they wanted him. They had caught him. He claimed to do something that only God can do. That's blasphemy. We have him. And a few stories later, we're going to see that his continued claims to be God and exercising authority even over their traditions is going to lead them to begin plotting for his death. Now, remember our main driving thesis for the book in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. We just saw the gospel. Now comes another clear display that Jesus, a physical outward display that Jesus is the Son of God. As we mentioned earlier, the scribes were right. If this was anybody but Jesus, no one but God can forgive sins. And if he claimed, if what he claimed was not true, he was guilty of breaking the law. And the law says he could be killed. But Jesus is God. Here once again, we are confronted that there is no middle ground when it comes to what you believe about Jesus. As C.S. Lewis put it, Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's not a good moral teacher. Because if he was just a good moral teacher but not Jesus, how many lies did he tell? It doesn't make a good moral teacher. He's not just an example of good leadership. Someone who lived to make his immediate society better. He's the divine son of God. And he sets out once again to prove his deity. Now, when Jesus asked them the question, is it easier to do this or to do this, to heal or to say forgive sins? The answer really is neither. <laughs> the ability to forgive sins, the ability to completely, immediately restore a paralytic is divine, impossible by human strength. So he's not really asking them the question. If you were posed with that question, you'd be like, I got nothing. <laughs> I can't forgive sins. I can't heal a paralytic. So what he was doing is setting the stage. Basically saying, it is more easily verifiable for my divine authority to be seen by human eyes through the healing of a paralytic than in speaking the forgiveness of sins. Let me say that again. It is more verifiable for Jesus' divine authority to be seen by human eyes through the healing of a paralytic than in speaking forgiveness of sins. So in order for them to see that he's divine and is not blaspheming, he immediately and completely heals the man. Which begs the eternal question, who is Jesus to you? Is he who he claimed to be? Or is he not? There is no middle ground. <clears throat> Lastly, we see a response to his healing miracle, don't we? Now, while, while glorifying God because of the healing work of Jesus is commendable and proper, we see that in, in, in uh, verse 12. So we see the paralytic rising. He immediately picked up his bed. He went out before them all. What was the result? They were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. It's commendable. It's proper. But what didn't we see earlier? Did we see that kind of response when Christ proclaimed the forgiveness of sins? When he hurt, healed this man's soul? When he reconciled him to the God of the universe? 
I believe this helps continue to paint the picture of what's surrounding Christ at this time. Extreme popularity because of his healing, but minimal response to his gospel preaching. Jesus' mission comes into clear view here once again. Why would he prohibit unclean spirits and the leper from broadcasting this incredible miracle of healing? Why? Because it was hindering his gospel mission. So Christ, we can see, was not consumed with numerical success, or he would have said, go tell everybody. Bring them. Let's build a crowd. He wasn't consumed with popularity and drawing crowds, but rather he was consumed with the mission of his father to live a perfectly righteous life, to faithfully preach the gospel, and to be crucified for the sins of his people. And then through the resurrection and the ascension, He's glorified. He sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting till all things come under his feet to perfectly rule and reign the consummation of his eternal kingdom. That is the mission. So if Christ was not interested in all those other things, but stayed focused on the preaching and proclamation of the gospel, begs a question for us. How are we doing? Corporately, individually, what consumes us? Are we more interested in numerical success over and above the faithful proclamation of the gospel? Are we tempted to swerve from that mission even with good things? May nothing ever replace at Trinity Baptist Church in the center of our lives, the center of our homes, what should be the main mission? The proclamation of the gospel in the church, the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. And if that remains our goal, what we're striving for, it'll keep us from falling into the same trap as these who are so consumed with the good gifts and the miracles of Jesus, they miss the gospel. So may we never lose the wonder of salvation through the gospel. How often do we find ourselves giving the most exuberant praise and glory to God for his gifts? And become cold and callous to the supernatural work of the gospel in someone's life. But rather may our loudest, most sincere, most exuberant praise be reserved for when we see a cold, dead heart who is blind to Christ be replaced by a, by a heart that is warm and alive and consumed with the glory of Jesus. May the success of our ministry be seen not in our buildings, not in our membership role or our bank accounts, but in the faithful, plodding ministry of gospel proclamation from the pulpit, in our growth classes, in our homes, in our life groups, around our dinner tables, in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment. Our goal is through the gospel, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4 is that we would obtain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, that we would grow up into every way into our head, Jesus Christ. So unlike the crowds who marveled that I didn't see anything like this before, who missed the forgiveness of sins, the gospel, may we see God's good gifts, not as walls, not as ends in and of themselves, but Maybe the windows through which we see God himself as the greatest gift, as the greatest 
treasure that anyone could ever receive. And once again, that only happens through the mission that Jesus committed himself to. That only happens through the gospel. That's what it means. It's not cliche when you may hear us from time to time talk about wanting to be a, a ministry that's, that's focused solely on the gospel, that's centered on the gospel. It's not cliche. It's following the mission of our captain. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the example of Christ who thought his divine equality with God not as something to be tightly held onto and tightly grasped, but rather took upon himself the form of a servant, became the son of man, so that he would be humbled, humbled to the point of death on the cross, so that he might one day be fully exalted, before whom all Knees will bow and every tongue will confess that this is Jesus, the one who claimed to be the Son of God and proved himself to be the Son of God as we see in the Gospels and through his life on earth, that that is truly who he always was and always will continue to be. And as individuals and as a church, may we continually submit to the authority of our head, Jesus. May his mission drive Everything we do here, drive our preaching and teaching ministry, our discipleship ministry, our prayer ministries, our children's ministries, our family ministries. May it drive our, what's, what goes on in our homes and underneath our roofs and in our workplaces. And may we be consumed with the mission of Christ, the faithful proclamation of the gospel, the building up of the saints, the evangelization of the lost. And Father, as we do that, we will have great success because you will smile upon this local church and say they haven't lost their first love. They love Christ and his mission. Father, may that be continually true of us. We pray this in the name of our captain, our savior, redeemer, our friend, Jesus Christ. Amen.